morning. Have you ever felt that you really wanted to know God's will, and even better yet, you were prepared to do it, but you didn't have a clue what it was? I guess some yeses are out there. Put it more bluntly, you ever thought, I really want to do God's will, but why won't he just tell me what it is? I mean, why is God seen to be so silent uh, before a willing servant? Many of us struggle with God's will, and maybe even would say, you know, if we're willing to do God's will, it seems he owes us the courtesy to at least tell us what it is. You know, the four central laws is the most uh, famous tract of the 20th century, and the first law is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And I'm sure that's true, but how in the world do you know what that wonderful plan is? Guidance is a really important thing. I realize that in a larger sense, God's will for all of us is to conform us to the image of Christ. But on the very more particular level, how do you live into that vocationally? What, how do you know God's will for your life and how you're to use your life for his kingdom? These are really important questions that most everybody at Asbury suffers or struggles with this, at least if not now, have in your life. And myself, being a, uh, you know, a long struggler with God's will, I know this world well. And I've discovered that basically there's three different views of how we discover God's will and out there. The first is what I would call the needle in the haystack view. These aren't the professional terms, these are just my terms. Needle in the Haystack view says that uh, God has one fixed will for your life, and your job is to find it. And boy, it's difficult. It's like finding that needle. The needle is God's will in the haystack of all the distractions of the world, the flesh, and the devil that come roaring through your life, and it's a great recipe for discouragement. It's hard to discern. And by the way, if you know this literature of this particular view, they make all these distinctions, which used to drive me crazy. There was God's perfect will, God's preferential will, God's perceptive will, and God's permissive will. Oh my goodness. Which P are you on? I never knew how you could find out. I just hope on one of the P's, one of the better P's. Then there is the elephant in the room view. I love this one. It's just the opposite. This view says... God's will is right before your eyes all the time. Just get up and do it. You don't need any, you know, any mystical experience or special invitation. You just need to seize the day. Uh, this view is summarized by the phrase, uh, the need constitutes the call. If you see hungry people, you don't need to spend time praying about it. If you have the ability to feed them, then feed them. If you see people who need evangelism and you have the ability to evangelize, then just do it. But many of you will see all kinds of needs that you can throw yourself into. And you have gifts for most of those. What do you do if the elephant in the room becomes a herd of elephants? <laughs> the third view is the follow your passions view. Now this is where you get all the spiritual inventory websites. Oh my goodness, there's so many of them. The internet will shut down when you start putting in those things. You take time, it's kind of like the, like the Christian version of Myers-Briggs, you know, the 16 calling types. And you find out what your gifts are, your inclinations are, and you do that. If you're gifted about raising awareness for human trafficking, then you should do that. 
If you're gifted at preaching the gospel, you should do that. If you're gifted at administration, oh my goodness, there's a school waiting for you to receive your gifts. But many of you have multiple gifts. And I can also promise you, certainly the vast majority I'm looking at in this room, many of you have so many gifts that you've not yet discovered you even have. That's one of the gifts of God. He keeps bringing these gifts to you as you go through life. And then also, I think the reality is that sometimes God calls us to areas which don't really particularly fit our inclinations or gifts. Well, this is the eighth part in this series on the Spirit-filled life. And at the outset, I told you that we were going to look at three channels through which the Holy Spirit works. One channel was the the Spirit's anointing to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, the kind of the missional thrust of the Holy Spirit. The other was the holiness thrust, where he purifies us, makes us holy, conforms us to his likeness. And the third area is the Holy Spirit who works in wisdom, discernment, and guidance in our life. And it's this theme, which we've only had one other section on, but I want to develop it well uh, or better this morning. Both our texts this morning are set within Paul's uh, so-called missionary journeys, In the midst of this, we find a lot on God's guidance in Paul's life and in the life of the church. And ironically, if you look at these texts, none of them fit into the three channels I talked about, or the three, you know, needle in the haystack, elephant in the room, follow your passions view. We actually see some very different things introduced in the New Testament. And maybe that's partly our problem. And I'm hoping that we can see this a little better today. First, Acts 13. Now, this text opens up, it's a remarkable church. We're introduced to the church at Antioch. This is, of course, the church that was uh, planted by those unnamed disciples from Cyprus and Cyrene, Acts 11. And now we see two chapters later, the church has grown up, and they are exercising spiritual gifts. That's the first thing to know. There's four things I want to point out, but the first thing, they're exercising spiritual gifts. We meet, right off the bat, we meet prophets, and pastors and teachers in this church. If you look at the four list of uh, spiritual gifts in the New Testament, in first Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, the two lists, the beginning and the end, and Ephesians 4, the major list, the one gift that is found in all four gifts, all four lists, is the gift of prophecy. Isn't that interesting? It's the one gift that's found in every list. And here you have, in this early church, we already find there are prophets present in the, book of, in, the, in the church of Antioch. Now, a prophet is not simply, you know this, someone who foretells the future. That, of course, happens. But some, more often, someone who foretells actually gives guidance and gives direction to, of God's will for God's people. So this is a really important office of the church that's designed to help the church with guidance. The second thing we notice about Antioch is that it's a very diverse church. Uh, There are a number of, uh, there's at least three kinds of diversities in this church that we should, uh, you know, just kind of bring out. First of all, we have uh, ethnic diversity. Um, You have Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, and Herod's household grew up there in Saul of Tarsus. They're ethnically diverse. There's Jews and Gentiles in leadership in the church. They are economically and educationally diverse with Saul of Tarsus and Menaean, etc., especially. You have geographic and cultural diversity. Do you realize that not one of these leaders, in the, and they mention Acts 13, 
is even from the same country. And by the way, none of them are from Antioch. So here's a church in Antioch. All of their leaders are from other places. This gives you a glimpse into the kind of global vision of the church. They're all five from five different countries. They're from Cyrene, Cyprus, North Africa, Turkey, and Jerusalem. And they're from two different continents. So this is a very diverse church. Thirdly, it's a spirit-directed church, and this is really remarkable. Here they are in a, in a worship service. While they're worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, when has that shown up in your church bulletin? The Holy Spirit speaks to them. Now, it's certainly striking. The Holy Spirit is actually giving guidance to a gathered church together. And we often think about discerning God's will, at least my experience in this, is mostly it's put to you as an individual struggling your way through with the help of Myers-Briggs or whatever. Right, so it's kind of like a personal struggle on your knees before God. Here you see uh, corporately the Spirit of God speaking corporately to the church with a prophetic gift. The Holy Spirit said, set apart Saul and Barnabas for the work which I've called them. Now, put yourself in the shoes of the church at Antioch. All right, they have got the fastest-growing church in the world. All right, by the second century, this will be, uh, be a quarter of a million believers in the larger Antioch. This is a growing concern of the church. This is the first Gentile breakthrough. This is the place to be. They have the dream team pastoral staff. Think about it. They have Paul. Okay, the greatest theologian the church has ever known, uh, this amazing, articulate man, he's their pastor. And then they have Barnabas, the son of encouragement, this amazing pastoral captain. So here they are, they're like, hey, you know, who's your pastor? Well, we have, you know, Bill, and we have Sarah, we have Saul and Barnabas, you know. And this is like, this is their bragging rights. We got the two best pastors in the world, and they're our lead pastors. So one night they're at a prayer meeting, the Holy Spirit speaks and says, send out Saul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. Go send them out to plant other churches in other places. I just do not witness to that. No, I, I rebuke that. <laughs> There's no way that can be from God. Send it out, okay, we might could spare one of them temporarily, but send out both lead pastors simultaneously? Lord, are you kidding me? This is that unintuitive part of, the, of God's work. I mean, the Lord is messing with their church growth plans. So here you see uh, a very, very disruptive thing. And, you know, God does things that are disruptive. I, I have on my files, if I ever kind of get one in a laughing mood, it's a letter that I wrote in late 2008 to the trustees of Asbury Seminary and I listed out the five reasons why I could not, absolutely could not be the next president of Asbury Seminary. <laughs> okay, you see how that went. Um, because from my point of view, you know, my, my ministry was doing this, this, this. This was like the worst time to stop. The Lord said, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Four, Antioch is a missional church. This church is looking beyond their community, and that's what this whole call is about, pushing them out to new places and to plant, plant new churches. Now, you have to realize that in, in, the, in the nature of any church, 
that a church is located in a particular location. And so a church it is not the same as a missionary structure, right? So Saul, the, you know, Paul's missionary band, which is formed out of this text, is a separate structure. And the, on that separate structure, that's the mechanism which reaches Cyprus, city Antioch, uh, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, and Ephesus, which form the spine of church plants in the book of Acts. The church at Antioch cannot plant any of those churches because their structure can only reach Antioch. So a missionary structure is essentially a mobile band that extends the ministry of Antioch to another place. That's what a missionary band is. And I mean band, not like you know musical band, but you know, band. Traveling gospel band. So I think that's important to recognize that God is giving birth here to not just uh, a calling on two individuals, but a whole new structure that would allow the church to spread to new places. If you look at the Asbury Revival in 1970, the Asbury Revival is, of course, a huge, momentous event in the history of Wilmore, Kentucky, and those who were here in February of 1970. It's one of the great revivals of our country's history in the 20th century. But if you actually look at the history of the Asbury Revival, the reason it became known as the Asbury Revival and spread across this country is because someone had the foresight to realize that the revival would be limited if it just stayed in Wilmore. And they created a secondary structure, and they actually created bands of students who went out from Wilmore and traveled all over the country and shared what God was doing here, and revival broke out there. So you can see that the church structure and the traveling band type structure is very crucial for the way the church expands. I mean, I'll bring all this up because this was actually the original purpose of the itinerary system in the Methodist world. Now, that if you look at the early days, all itineracy was designed to spread the church and evangelize and plant new churches. Today, it's not that at all. And if I might quote Teddy Ray, one of our graduates, pastor of the Offerings UMC, where he said, it's, it, I'm like the New Testament, you know, somewhere he said this, on a blog somewhere, I, I never forgot it, somewhere on a Teddy Ray blog, he said this, today's itinerary system has become, quote, a temporary chaplaincy and promotion system. Teddy said it. <laughs> but it's true. It's true. The point is, the original impulse has degenerated from the original goal, which was this traveling, moving. Now, that's why Asbury's on the horse out here, because it's meant to be a movement. We are always on the move. So we should always look out for ways to start new communities of faith. And I want to just say a tremendous uh, admiration, I think, for our whole history, actually, of church planting. But particularly in the last 10 years I've been here, we have seen some great church plants that have happened because this, you're, you, your forebears, those who have gone before you and those who are not even here now, are in the process of extending their, even from the church where you're called or serve, to new church plants. I made a list of places where you, Asbarians, have planted churches in just the last few years. In coffee houses, in pubs, yeah, it's a church in a pub. That's like having a, you know, Carl Bart dissertation at Asbury Seminary. 
it's all things are possible. <laughs> Just joking. Um, community centers. We have churches and community centers, uh, like down at the Plantary in, in Lexington. Theaters, like uh, the Embrace Church. We have churches in homes, churches in school cafeterias, churches in Home Depot break rooms. We have a church in a public park, uh, David and Tracy Goss from California. We have a church in a tattoo parlor. You ever go to Ocala, Florida, go to Fat Cat's Artistry, and you'll see Michael Beck has a church there. To me, this, is a, this shows the vibrancy of what happens. This all happens because of guidance from the Holy Spirit. So when we go to 16.6, the, the second text, you see Paul and Barnabas on the move. Now here they are, they had this very emotional, powerful experience. I know what it's like to be situated in one place very firmly, and the Spirit blasts you out of that. This is a very powerful experience they had, Paul and Barnabas. They're now on their second missionary journey. Uh, they're traveling along. They go through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. And then it says, they were kept by the Holy Spirit from bringing the word to the province of Asia. Then they try to enter Mysia and Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus would not let them go in. So here they are meeting this closed door. Now in chapter 13, they could have been called into this mission. Now here we are in chapter 16, they're meeting closed doors. Now it's very easy in the face of a closed door to doubt the original call of God. Have you been there? I've been there. It's very easy to forget in the dark what you learn in the light. And so they have this experience where they don't know what to do. There's a lot of anxiety. I know in my own experience, I found looking back on this, that all of God's no's in closed doors, in the long run, are always God's deeper yes. Right? So God, our, what we think is a no at first, always ends up at the end being God's deeper yes. He has a better plan, a deeper plan for us that fulfills his mission and calling our life. And this happens to, to Paul himself and this, this whole uh, this, this band. So they keep finding these things that, and they eventually discover more and more challenges. So Paul gets, uh, for example, in a fight with Barnabas about John Mark. Now, this is this team that have been called by God, and now they're in a big fight. It's a serious fight. They get, they, get, they get such a sharp dispute with each other that they decide to separate into two groups. Now, that's a big no. It's like, God, what, you know, what happened that night? We were in Antioch, and the Holy Spirit came down and called us, and they laid hands on Saul and Barnabas, and now we're fighting with each other. But God, the no of that became the deeper yes of God's work through Silas, and actually multiplied the ministry out from there. Paul goes out and he hits another closed door. The, again, we, the Spirit is saying no to Mysia, no to Thinny. We mentioned that. They, then they finally get this yes of the mastering man who calls them over. They finally go over to, uh, to Lydia. They meet Lydia in Philippi. Very quickly, Paul finds himself arrested, uh, Paul and Silas, and they're thrown into prison. Now, you think about it. Put yourself in their shoes, okay? They, they get called by God in this mission. They end up having a breakup uh, into, the first, uh, into the first mission. They have a breakup about the mission. The second mission, they get called to go deeper, and they get the Holy Spirit says, no, not there, no, not there. They finally get this assurance to go into, uh, across to Philippi, across the seventh race into Europe. They go over to Philippi, and guess what happens? They get locked up and put in prison. Think about that night. 
Lord, what are you doing here? Well, finally, they get uh, that no becomes a greater yes because, they, of course, has the earthquake and the jailer and his whole family get saved. Paul finds an open door in Thessalonica. He gets there, and a mob tries to kill him. He escapes in the middle of the night to Berea, and so often the church spreads this way. You know, you spread like you know, as you're running from town to town. They keep spreading the gospel. Paul follows uh, the mob follows Paul to Berea, so he escapes to Athens, but none of his companions could join him there, so he's left alone in Athens. He finally makes it to Corinth, where he meets huge opposition. And finally, and by the way, this is one of the last red letters in the Bible, the Lord appears to Paul in Acts 18, verse 9. And he says to him, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. I am with you, and no one will attack you and harm you in the city. I have many people here. Now that was a great night. But there's a lot of turbulence between Acts 16 and Acts 18 between the Macedonian man call, which seemed to be a very positive movement, and then finally the Lord saying to Paul in Corinth, it's okay, I'm with you. Some of you are right now experientially living between Acts 16 and Acts 18. You know, God's given you a call. You, it's a reasonable call. You can go back in your diary or go back in your, you know, your notes, and you can find it. Yes, on this night, I sensed a call into the ministry. I sent a call to come to Asbury or whatever. And yet, you've experienced turbulence, you've hit some, you know, closed door, or two, or three, and you've had persecution or difficulties or challenges. You may not have been thrown into prison, but you may have felt like it at times. And so all that is there. But, you know, the Bible tells us, all God's promises are yes in Jesus Christ. God's, our greatest disappointment can become his appointment. And so part of it is that persevering through all of that and knowing God is actually using his call to form us and shape us. So what? there's three big takeaways from this, I think, is the departure from the three paths I mentioned earlier and how we know God's will. First, the gathered church clearly plays a much stronger role in discerning God's will. Do we have a place for the church to speak into our lives? I think about even when they had the vision of Messianic man, they still met together and decided that it must be God's will they go to Philippi. Secondly, we have clearly to do a better job persisting through roadblocks and various no's that we meet. That is modeled in the book of Acts. We must be persistent in God's call. And finally, we need much greater openness to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The, the prophetic gift is really neglected. I, mean, I haven't been to a lot of churches that really have nurtured the prophetic gifts, and yet this is one of the key gifts in the New Testament, and it did not die out with the apostles. Uh, cessationism is an error, all forms of it. Just delete it from your hard drive. So we need to nurture this in our lives. I want to close with um, a sort of my own life, my own turbulence uh, that I've experienced along these lines. In the 1970s, I felt a clear and unmistakable call into the Christian ministry. Now, at that time in my life, if you had asked me, for, for years after that, in fact, what does that mean? What does God's call in your life mean? I would have told you unequivocally, God has called me to a lifetime of pastoral ministry until I die. Okay? Well, see how that's gone? So, 
I, at some point, uh, fast forward into the uh, early 1990s, I began to sense God calling, uh, my wife and I began to sense God calling us to go to the International Institute for Christian Studies, IICS, it's now called Global Scholars, uh, to work in Nigeria. We prayed about it, we fasted about it, went through all, and we felt a real strong call. Enough to, uh, you know, we, we left our ministry, I, I resigned from ministry, we, we lost our pension plan, all those things. We just went out in faith to go to Nigeria. I resigned from my job, and off we went. Well, because our children were small, I decided to, it was wise to go ahead of time and, you know, get the apartment ready and just kind of normal things you have to do to get ready to, to live in Nigeria. So we were going to live in Port Harcourt. I got there, and I hadn't been there very long when there was a coup on the government, and there was a big, the whole country was in uproar, and eventually uh, they raided the offices of the vice chancellor of Port Harcourt University. Now, the vice chancellor is their version of the president, because it's the president's office. He's the one that had negotiated with me to, to teach there. We were we were founded in the Department of Christian Studies in that, in that university. Anyway, so we, we, uh, they had this uproar, and they go through his files, and I don't know to this day whether they like, went through all of his files or just plucked out my file, but they eventually found my file. They opened it up, went through it, and they discovered that all of the signatures for my contract were all forged. They're all forged. It's a long story that went, eventually went to a court case, but the bottom line is I had to get out of the country in just a short time. So I got on a plane, came back. Uh, my, Joy and I had a little apartment still at Princeton. I'd, got, I'd spent a year, uh, another example of this, I'd spent all this time, I'd spent a year uh, doing a THM at Princeton in Islam, and particularly my thesis on African Islam, because we're preparing to go and work in Africa. So all of this was part of the preparation, because we were so sure God had called us. I get back to the apartment. I'm sitting there very, very uh, discouraged. I have no job, no direction, and a lot of questions. And I remember thinking that, that night, I remember being there, I remember turning to, my, turning to Julie. She's right here. She can testify. And I said to Julie, this is not my best moment. I said to Julie, I said, I said Julie, I said, I can accept all of this disaster has happened to us. That we leave our job, we go to Nigeria, the whole thing blows up, now we're back home with nothing, no future, no small children, what do we do? If, if, if the Lord would just tell me why. And Julie, who's more sanctified than I am, <laughs> which has never been disputed by anybody, that knows her, Julie says to me that night, she's feeling all the pain I'm feeling, of course, but she said, but we're his servants, and he doesn't owe us an explanation. Wow, that's true. So I didn't get a call from Messonian Man, but I did get a call from my district superintendent, which is kind of a, a version of Messonian Man, I guess. My DS called me up and said, do you want to come back to Georgia to, to pastor? I was from the North Georgia Conference. So I said, yeah, yes, I'll go anywhere. That's another dangerous thing to tell a, a DS. I'll go anywhere. <laughs> anyway, eventually he called me back a few weeks later and said, uh, you know, the cabinet's meeting. They go through this process, as you all know. And he said, um, we have four churches that we're going to send you to. And, and, or, you know, I'm sorry, four possibilities of place we'll send you to. And, you know, do you have any reaction to them? So he listed off four places, this church, this church, this church, and four different cities, you know, towns. What do you think? And I said, I'll go any of them. I'll go to any of them. Just, just tell me where to go. 
So we got the map out of Georgia before the days of any kind of GPS. Got the map out. We found these towns and we put little pins in them. And we're like, okay, we're praying. We're praying, Lord, which one of these towns you're sending us to? And then eventually the DS calls me up and he says, um, I know I told you those four towns, but actually we're not sending you to any of them. We're sending you to a place called Carnesville. Now, whenever you hear a town, it ends with the word ville. It's a very bad sign. <laughs> I grew up in Georgia. I mean, I feel, I feel I pride myself, and I know Georgia. I never heard of Carnesville. This has got to be a very small town. So we're still in Princeton at this time, so I told my praying friends, the Lord has sent us to Carnesville, Georgia. And like Christians often do, they laughed at me, and they said, oh, Carnesville, that must be a truck stop on I-85. Well, we got in our U-Haul, we drove down, and found out that Carnesville is a truck stop on I-85. <laughs> Apparently, the prophetic gift is still alive in the church. They prophesied that. I was feeling so demoralized. Here we were, we had this plan, this, this vision of God, that we're going to go to Nigeria, uh, train people to reach Muslims in northern Nigeria in the house of land. Uh, this is, like, to me, the greatest thing in the world to do. I was so excited. I cannot tell you how much I wanted to go to Nigeria and train pastors to reach Muslims. And I found myself on a truck stop at I-85. Well, I thought I was at the lowest point emotionally possible. And we pulled up to the, to the parsonage in our U-Haul. And I got out, and they, didn't, they never didn't know who we were. They were coming from New Jersey, you know, they didn't know who we were. All they knew was the pastors coming with two children. I get out of the U-Haul, I, I go to the parsonage, knock on the door, and the the pastor parish relations chairperson was there. His name is T.C. Lockerman. Remember T.C. Lockerman? T.C. Lockerman answers the door. And this is his first words to me. I promise you, as God is my witness, he said this to me. Hello, son. Where is your father? Okay. I really did go down a few more notches. I realized in that agonizing moment that he thought, I, there's no way I could be his pastor. I was way too young. I must be the kid. And I had the very painful experience of kind of mumbling out, I'm so sorry, but I am your pastor. <laughs> that night, we had our boxes all around us. You know how this is. And we were there alone, just doing our kids were in sleep at this point. And I remember we were just praying, and oh God, here we are, on a truck stop on I-85, where they think I am the child of the pastor. <laughs> Lord, what in the world? We've given our whole life to you. What is going on? And the Lord spoke to me that night, and he said this to me, and I wrote it down, never forgotten it. He said to me very clearly, if you can't serve me here, I can't use you anywhere, but if you can serve me here, I can use you everywhere. And that was one of the most defining moments of my, God's call in my life, that God can sometimes send you all the way to Nigeria and back. He was sent in Nigeria. It was just for, for a week, two weeks. I had to go all the way there and back to learn a basic lesson about God's call. Well, I don't think that most of you struggle with God's will because you're not spiritual enough 
or you haven't dedicated enough prayer to it? Probably not. You probably have struggled a lot with it and prayed a lot about it. But I wonder if we have missed letting more of the church's voice speak into our lives. I wonder if we have let discouragement or closed doors keep us from persisting in God's will. I wonder if we might need more of the role of the Holy Spirit nurtured in us so we might receive God's voice in our lives in fresh ways. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray.